Welcome to Your Partner in Success Radio, a program that values the potential of knowledge, collaboration, and growth. The show is hosted by Denise Griffiths, who is known as an intensely curious nerd in stilettos. Each Wednesday, she is joined by co-host Ben Gay III, a renowned figure in the sales world. Ben is recognized for introducing The Closers, one of the most popular and powerful sales training materials ever produced. Having been mentored by Dr. Napoleon Hill himself, Ben has gained a wealth of knowledge in sales and life. Throughout the show, Denise and Ben delve into the world of sales, entrepreneurship, and success, exploring Ben's vast experience from guiding and mentoring countless professionals to achieve unparalleled success in their careers. Together, they offer unmatched guidance to listeners seeking success in their professional endeavors. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Closers Inner Circle Podcast, hosted by your partner in Success Radio. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and together with my co-host, Ben Gay III, we are diving into the world of sales mastery with this gem from the Closers part two. Now these books, parts one and two, are widely known as the sales Bibles. So last week we covered power closers, listen clearly, and that was from the closers part two, page 109. Today we step into the world of sales mastery with a true legend in the field, my co-host Ben Gay III, who is the acclaimed author of the books that I mentioned, closers part one and part two. And for years, Ben has passionately advocated consulted, consultative, is that right, Ben? Consultative? Close. Oh, <laughs> I'm from the South. I can say it any old way I That's want. That's right. right. I'm, I'm a Southerner too, so I under, <laughs> I speak Southern. Go there right you ahead. Go. So it didn't matter how I said it. So no. Consultative, oh crap, I said it once already. Also known as power selling. I'm not going to try that word again. This approach goes beyond the transactional, emphasizing the importance of becoming a recognized leader in your field. So if you have the Closers books in your entrepreneurial library, open up the Closers part one to page 113, 113. Become an expert. Good morning, Ben. It's Wednesday, which is officially my favorite day of the week because I get to spend it with you. How are you doing? It is a pleasure to hear, speaking of Southern, hear that sweet Southern accent. I, talking to you, I always feel like I've gone back to Atlanta. You guys are <laughs> somewhat different, but I, it right. sounds sounds familiar. And see, I insist that I do not have an accent. I have a draw. <laughs> and if I'm tired, I re- I, yeah, I can even hear it and it's irritating. Like I'll say, oh, you know, move the fireplace, oh, move the fireplace screen. <laughs> <I can hear it. laughs> but yeah, you know, I don't have an accent because I live in Cajun country and accents, as you know, are regional and I do not sound like them. I never will. Don't no, want to. Not yeah. at all. We talked, we were talking about Justin Wilson in the, the green room. That was an accent that just made the back of my hair raise up. I hated it. It was so fake. Yeah, the, Denise and I were talking, ladies and gentlemen, about Southern accents, and that they are the worst when faked in movies or with Justin Wilson with his Cajun accent or whatever. Uh, when faked, it, they, it just makes my skin crawl. Uh, I think just just don't even mention you're a Southerner. Just read your lines. Sorry, I pushed the wrong button. You're right. And just, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, we we tend to pick up on nuances in speech. 
And if you're faking it, kind of like anything else, if you're faking your persona on social media, if you're faking your voice, people are going to eventually pick up on that and go, oh, I wonder what else they're faking. I have I've been blessed to have traveled a whole bunch and I can pick up accents. People used to say neighborhood by neighborhood. It never was quite that good, but there's a significant difference between one area of Minnesota and another area and so on. But the two that on the phone I can I can almost never break up is a Southern lady from Dallas or Atlanta. Somehow they sound the same to me. Every time I guess, I've only got a 50-50 chance of getting it right. But uh, I, I love accents and different regional ways of talking. I told you earlier, Zig tried to, uh, when I decided I was going to train away my southern accent, which I think I've done to a degree, but people are forever saying to me, where, where are you from? The one I just heard. Yeah. That one? <laughs> where are y'all from? Uh, but uh, I did make an attempt to train mine away, and Zig said I was making a mistake. And looking back, I think he was right, because people love – Zig could read a phone book and make it sound interesting because of his heavy southern accent. I and, think I told you how I came across Zig Ziglar. I was out – my car had this thing back in the years, years ago, about just driving itself to, to uh, garage sales. It just managed to do it. I was in charge of the steering wheel. And I get to this garage sale and I'm poking around. I didn't need anything, didn't want anything. It was just entertainment. And I picked up this little plastic binder, which I, I'd never seen. It was like a square. I still have it. And I opened it up and there were six cassette tapes in there. And all they said was Zig Ziglar. And I think it was 50 cents. The sticker said 50 cents. And I didn't even know how I was going to play them. I had to come home and find my <laughs> but I didn't know what a Zig Ziglar was. So I got home, I cranked open my, you know, the little boom box and I instantly fell in love with Zig Ziglar. Yeah, he was really something. He, he was. Could, he could charm and tell a great story. Zig's story, I, I hardly ever tell it doesn't come up. Zig would tell you who he was talking about, you know, Bubba so-and-so or so-and-so names in the stories and they were all allegedly true stories from from back home and uh, one day he told a story he we worked together and then he worked for me uh, but I learned how to speak in public by agreeing to carry that stupid pump around that he always had I said I'll carry it in exchange for front row seating uh, at any seminar for free and he said fine he was tired of carrying it too so that's how I, Zig and I spent a lot of time together. <clears throat> so he told the story one day and it, Zig used to laugh. He said, if I'm, if I lose track, I just look over at you because you're mouthing my talk. I've memorized all the stories and so on. <laughs> and occasionally I would shake my head like, no, that's not the way we tell that story. And you'd see him sort of correct himself. Uh, so anyway, he told the story I had never heard before. And, uh, when he came off, I said, Zig, that story, I forget what it was, but I said, it's really neat. I, I enjoy it. But you didn't mention who it was. You didn't give a name. And he said, I haven't gotten that far yet. Oh, you know, 
<laughs> when you were talking about that, you know, these stories allegedly about somebody from back home, I instantly saw Jerry Clower pop up in my Oh, head. yeah. Yeah. Remember Jerry Clark? If I'm lying, yep. I'm dying. <laughs> I always thought he was one of the funniest people outside of some Cajun comedians from here. There, some of them, if you can understand, the accent are just hilarious. But you have to be able to decipher. If you're not from around here, you have to be able to kind of go, what, what, what did that? Oh, never mind. Somebody, somebody, tell me what he's saying. It sounds funny. Yeah, or yeah, I know when to laugh. The audience shows me that. But is there anybody here who can translate for me? Right, right. But I didn't know that Zig, well, I probably should have. But, you know, when I opened those and I played them forever. In fact, I I don't even think I have the boombox or whatever you want to call the little thing. I don't think I could play them now. But it, now, of course, we can find them online. So mm-hmm. I'm not bereft. Yeah, he's uh, bereft. That's a pretty fancy word for a Southern lady. I know. Uh, <laughs> you decided to flash your education there. Is that I did. It is the one for the day. I'm, I'm out now. I'm finished. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he was delightful and had a wonderful way of storytelling. I told Zig uh, one time, uh, he said, do you think sales training will go on forever? And I said, sure, there'll be salespeople forever and they're going to need training forever. But should it fall apart, you got a great lounge act. You know, the fact that biscuits, fleas and pump handles, his three favorite stories were about selling. All you had to do is not say selling anymore. And they were about life. And uh, so he was he was just masterful at what he did. Now, didn't Zig Ziglar work for you or with you at one one point? I'm yeah, yeah. Sure. September 15th, 1965, we both answered a little one ad in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, unbeknownst to each other. We didn't know each other. I'd never heard of him. And uh, we went to a, what we thought was a job interview. It turned out it was an opportunity meeting with three people, my partner, Jimmy Rucker, and Zig. There's a cute story there, but I won't bore you with it because I've told it 8 million times about how we met and laughed at each other's names and so on. So we then became, we both joined the company, both became, we became friendly competitors. And about a year into that friendship, they had a nationwide uh, year-long, big mistake, but I, I wasn't running the company then, year-long sales contest, which I won by the skin of my teeth, and Zig came in second. My uh, prize was the mystery prize, which turned out to be president of Holiday Magic Cosmetics, the big multi-level marketing firm, biggest in the world in its day, uh, and uh, he got second prize, a Rolls-Royce. And there were many days when we talk on the phone, I'd say, Zig, here's the deal. You bring the car out here, give me the keys. I'll give you the keys to the front door of the building. He's, he would say, oh, no, you won fair and square because the mystery prize was presidency of the company. And, and it was a mystery prize because William Penpatrick, the owner, told me over dinner the night he told me what I had won. I said, God, uh, mystery prize. What if somebody had won it that you didn't like? I knew there were lots of people in the field he didn't like. <laughs> and he said, well, I, it was a mystery prize. I would just have changed the prize. They never would have known. But I like you, and I think you have a big future with us, and so you're the president. Said all that to say this. Zig and I started out working side by side in friendly competition. When I became president, 
I used to love to tell in a loud stage voice whenever Zig was within earshot. Oh, Zig Ziglar, of course I know him. He works for me. Oh, and he, 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 he was 18 years old. And, and uh, you were, he was 18 years older than you, right? 17. Yeah. yeah but and tell people ago. how old you were when this happened to you. Uh, I was 25 when yep. I became president of the company. Uh, way too young. But uh, fortunately, Bill Patrick perhaps saw that. I was doing a good job. Sales are going up. We got it up to a million dollars a day in late $60. That's about three and a half billion with a B uh, in today's money. But through it all, I was, in the beginning, I was 25. Couldn't read a profit and loss statement. Still can't. Uh, and uh, was winging it. So that's when Bill Patrick hired Dr. Napoleon Hill to be my personal coach, mentor, friend, and uh, to give me a, access to a little age and wisdom. So that's how he came into my life. Zig was accidental. We both answered a one ad that only ran one day in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. What are the odds of the top two distributors in the world answering it? What are the odds? Um, you actually... One and seven and a half billion now. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> I actually had to stop and think about that. Yeah. Like, well, I don't know. I never, yeah. Look, I almost failed algebra. I went and got my computer science degree and almost ran out of the building when I hit algebra because I hated it. It's a made-up bunch of nonsense. So yeah. you know, I got but that But you use it more than you realize in little calculations you do during the day. A lot of that is algebra, a friend of mine was telling me, because I had the same problem. I was doing pretty well in school, although I was a cut-up. But we got to the fifth grade, and I got a crazy teacher, Fannie Mae Parks, who before the year was over, they took away. I mean, the guys in the white coats came and got her in class and took her away did you and do that to her i have to ask i was probably a contributing factor but uh, i wasn't the only one cute story she was just had just come out of teachers college so she wasn't there the end of the previous year when the faculty decided who was going to go in what classes so they took all of us cut-ups there were about 10 of us all boys for some bizarre reason uh, no. and and really? and Stuck them in Fannie Mae Park's class, and that may have pushed her over the edge. Oh, my. <laughs> but anyway, it was in that fifth grade that they took up algebra, and I became a disciplinary problem, and my grades fell off immediately. I just didn't get it. Oh, I was definitely a disciplinary problem. Yeah. In fact, I actually stood up because my the instructor was saying, Denise, you're so smart. You're passing everything with flying colors. Why can't you do this? And I stood up. I got mad. I stood up. I said, because it's a made up bunch of crap that somebody <laughs> who can't get laid made up to be get even with the world. I don't like it. And they, I got sent to what would be called the principal's office if you weren't in college and they took me and three other people who were just having fits in this class and they put us near the boiler room and let us do our own thing. <laughs> True story. Put you in a, in a special room. I got, yeah, well, that happened to me a lot in high school too. I was always <laughs> sent off to go somewhere and read and think, which was what I wanted. That's why I stayed in trouble. But, you know, honestly, it's a big, I know I use it, but just I don't want to know I'm using it. I really hate it. Yeah. 
it has to be cleverly disguised for yeah. me. But if you draw a line and start that, you know, above and below line and then put up parentheses, I go, oh, yeah, I've seen this numbered. before. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> not numbered. Give me a number that I can handle. Yeah. If you start putting all kinds of little symbols on there, that's just garbage. I'm sorry. <laughs> my brain, and I'm a fairly smart person, but my brain cannot compute that, will not compute it, and I don't want to learn. Well, I'm with you. And the teacher used to say, uh, you've got to learn this. You won't always have uh, an adding machine nearby. Well, actually... Uh -huh. I do now. <laughs> it's called a cell phone. And uh, so there's nothing I can't figure out given a little time. But give me a blank piece of paper and some of those problems, my mind just shuts down. Oh, same here. And I would look at them and just say, there has to be an easier way to do this. I, You know, I had a 4.0 <laughs> until I hit algebra. Yeah. I was not happy. I'm still not happy now that I think about it. But, you know, it's, well, you have to have it. No, I don't. You have to have no it. <laughs> that particular instructor did not like me very much. I can't imagine why. I was not a pain in his side. I was kind of entertaining to the rest of my classmates. But a uh, long time ago, but I'm not over it yet. So let's talk about, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting what you you get stuck on. It's like, this this is where I drew the line, and I'm hanging on to it. I'm going to be mad for the rest of my life. <laughs> Might as well have something like that. So let's talk about selling and power selling, because here's what I, you know, I've read the whole book multiple times, but this is what I took away from it, is that con combining consult <laughs> consultative selling and power selling creates a dynamic approach that not only involves understanding and addressing customer needs through active listening and tailored solutions, but also emphasizes the importance of building a strong personal brand and influence in the industry. So I think basically these are complementary terms, or are they the same term, just different wording? It, they're complementary terms. Uh, consultative selling is an attitude. Uh, power selling uh, is operating from a power, uh, a position of power and strength. But once you're in that position, you're doing consultative selling. We used to call it Larry Wilson Learning Corporation. He used to call it counselor selling. Oh. And, and that's uh, that's sort of where it came from, including power selling, which I came up with as a way of going, well, you got the empathy thing down. That's wonderful. But you're not closing any sales you still got to ask for the order or guide them to the order. Better yet, I like them to announce they bought. Uh, I don't like to have to ask the question. I do uh, from time to time, but pretty much we arrive at the conclusion together. And uh, that's uh, consultative selling and power selling combined. Slightly different, but they're cousins. That's what I was trying to arrive at. So let's talk about this chapter because I've looked at this one two or three times trying to figure out was there a difference, a big difference between the two terms or a slight difference, but you just explained it. They're cousins. That makes perfect sense. And in this chapter, uh, become a, an expert. Uh, I've learned that. Uh, I mean, it's sort of common sense, but most people don't do it. A lot of common sense things get ignored. But I learned it uh, 
working on uh, the sales floor at Macy's in the, in the houseware department. It was called Davison's back then, but it was owned by Macy's in Atlanta. And uh, I got thrown into the housewares department. I was hired uh, for one day to take back returns the day after Christmas. For that, they put us through two weeks of paid training, which I, fascinates me to this day. I, I don't recall what they covered in two weeks to spend on an eight-hour day, one day after Christmas. But I turned it into a career. The lady who hired me, Barbara Franz, lovely lady, uh, said somewhere in my job interview that she was going on vacation the day after Christmas for a couple of weeks, and she was really looking forward to it. So I took back returns the day after Christmas, knowing Barbara Franz was on a plane or in a car leaving town. And the next day, I just reported back to work. Uh, to the housewares department where I had been based before. And they said, oh, hi, what are you doing here? I said, I work here. And they said, oh, really? I said, sure, call Barbara Franz and ask her. And uh, they couldn't. <laughs> and uh, two weeks later, I was head of stock. I said, that's like a glorified stock boy and salesperson. And uh, I was in the stock room doing something. The door opened. I turned around. There stood Barbara Franz back from her two-week vacation. See, I'm, I, I'm now flashing back to your teacher who was taken away, but keep going. <laughs> so I said, oh, hi, Miss Franz. And she, she said, nicely played, Mr. Gay. <laughs> and I said, well, thank you. And she went away and it was never mentioned again, probably in the executive lounge it was, but, but not in front of me. So uh, winding up in housewares was a great, experience me because they had counting you know the gadget counter the 88 cent gadget counter whatever it was and then all the other stuff you know the hand mixers and the blenders and the this and the that housewares is the most diverse department in most department stores any department store i would assume and we had lawnmowers so we sort of bled over into what today would be a garden thing so i had to learn uh, at least the basics of about 5,000 items real quick. Some of them are simple. I mean, a can opener is a can opener, but that was one of the 7,000 items. And uh, in the lawn mowing department, we had, I'm making up numbers, but I'm guessing 10 different brands and probably 15 different lawnmowers. Well, they're all designed to cut grass. And the first question people ask, you know, is which one would you recommend? I didn't know I'd owned a lawn mowing business when I was starting when I was 14, but the lawnmower I used was my family's lawnmower. I just abducted it. <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. I remember it said Briggs and Stratton on the engine, and that was about the extent of my knowledge. So I learned rather quickly all of the different lawnmowers and their advantages and disadvantages and so on. And the difference between a two horsepower and a three horsepower and a lawnmower, that's a huge difference. And the swath and, and so on that it cut as you pushed it around or it pulled you around, as the case may be. And I became a resident expert in lawnmowers, which meant that when a man came into the department, generally, I'd say 99% were men came into the department, asked where the lawnmowers were. People would say they're right there in the back. And ask that young man right there, he's an expert in lawnmowers. 
So I was the go-to guy, and I soon found the advantage of that position. Grown men who've been mowing lawns as long or longer than I've been alive fell under my spell and did exactly what I told them to do. I'd ask two or three questions, you know, how big is your yard, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, I recommend this one, whatever it was. And uh, they would buy it. Uh, just no resistance, nothing. So I quickly discovered, I'm not sure I put a title on it, that becoming an expert in your line, and of course, a sales expert also, but becoming an expert in lawnmowers or the, the one that's hammered on in the book most on uh, page 113, become an expert in the closers part two is automobiles. I give the example of a Lincoln salesperson up against every other car in town, but back then, Lincolns versus Cadillacs. If somebody comes into my Lincoln dealership, just like in my lawnmower department, and starts talking about Cadillacs or asking questions or whatever, I wanted to be, and our listeners should be, in the position to know as much about the competition as you know about your own stuff. So, you know, I don't have to say, well, I don't know, go ask the Cadillac guy if, if theirs does this. I knew the competition uh, in everything I've ever sold rather quickly, as well as I knew my own stuff. And I knew what they were going to ask, and I knew the advantages and disadvantages. And occasionally, uh, I would say, you know, for what you want, you need to go get the Zuwiki 2000, and, and we don't sell it. That would be best for you in your unique situation. Uh, and then maybe give them a backup. Of course, you don't get me over there. Uh, so if you were going to buy it for your needs, if you were going to buy for that situation, here's the one I would recommend from those that I have. But the Zwicky 2000 is better for you, and you should know that. That ensures that you'll get the next sale from him or her and a lot of the referral sales from their friends, neighbors, and relatives because you're an honest guy, A. B, you know your stuff. And uh, so that's boil down the essence of the importance of becoming an expert in what you do. It shuts off them having to go check with your competition. Not unlike in real estate, uh, in real estate with multiple listing service and now on computer, just about any realtor can sell just about any piece of property and all the news about it is right there. But odds are your prospect or your customer client has already done it. They know as much as you do about the basics, you know, four bedrooms, two and a half baths, whatever. In uh, cars, it's the same thing, but they want to talk to someone that they know, like, trust, and can feel safe with. And that's your job is to become that person who's steeped in the knowledge of the industry in which you're selling. So, you know, when they say, well, what about this? Gigi still does it. Gigi, my lovely wife, used to be a realtor. Her dad owned one of the more successful real estate companies around here, and she sort of around here, and she sort of drifted into that. But she grew up here. Her family's been here in a little town of Placerville where gold was discovered for over 100 years. I, I hate to meet somebody because her first question will be, what was your maiden name? And I think, oh, God, here we go. 
Gigi will do everything but get out a, a standing chart and start drawing circles. Well, in, in, you know, oh, well, she was married to Bob, who moved out of town after the girl got pregnant, and, you know, and uh, starts down through the, the lineage of whoever she's talking to. It's incredible. She does the same thing with property. Uh, oh, really? Where do you live? Well, we live up on Arbor Avenue. Which house on Arbor Avenue? Uh, So-and-so. Oh, yeah. Uh, Denise uh, Colby used to live there. I've been in that house many times. Does it still have the, you know, whatever? She she was a tremendous realtor because she knew her inventory. There almost isn't a house in Placerville that she hasn't been in socially or business-wise. The house that, the houses, we have a house and a guest house. The houses we're in, uh, 10 years before we bought them, I'm guessing, she was in as a realtor. And so we bought them without going in them. The rentor who was here uh, didn't want anybody in the house. They didn't want to move. And so they made it difficult. And uh, I said to the realtor, well, we, we sort of, I'd like to sort of see the how I got to have some personal space, office space, shipping space. You know, I got to know what's in there. And Gigi says, oh, don't worry. I know both houses well and got out a piece of paper and started drawing. So the day we bought the houses and clothes and I walked in was the first time I'd ever seen the inside of either house. But I knew where to go and what to look for because Gigi knew. And she knew there's 50 houses in our subdivision or neighborhood, whatever you want to call it. And Gigi knows the floor plans of every one of them. She was here when they were being built. She knew the builders. She knew the people who used to own the pear orchard. Uh, which sat on this property, the Cumbellic family, and uh, so on. So if you to this day, people call her, Gigi, we're thinking about buying so-and-so. We know you're not in real estate, but, and she's all right. You walk in the front door. To the right is a den. <laughs> to the left is so-and-so. I can't find the den in our house. <laughs> <laughs> but she knows the interior layout. Our little town has 17,000 people in it, I think. Divide that by four. That's probably roughly how many houses we have. Gigi knows 90% of them. And, uh, and, and who used to own them. Oh, you live in the Smith house. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So and I trust she, her. That goes back to what you're saying about no like and trust. And like you, I didn't see my house because I bought it in between Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, and I bought it that day, sight unseen, because there was a panic going on, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. But I trusted, I didn't trust my ex-husband, sadly. He just wanted a house. We were in a rental. He wanted out, and he was going to buy anything that we could afford. I wasn't. But I trusted her judgment because she listened very carefully, and she called me. She said, look, this house came up today. This is a price. Go to your computer, look at the pictures. It has everything you want, giant trees. It was only a year old, the house. It was not in an HOA. It had massive windows. And she said, I said, do I want it? She said, you absolutely do. And I said, okay, get the papers. I'll get there in 80. I was 80 miles away. I didn't see this house until after I had met with her, signed my life away, and saw the house between 9 and 10 o'clock that night. But I trusted her. And she, she was, was she was a consultative seller, she was a power seller, and she met all the requirements of 
what I described 50 years ago. Know, like, trust, and with whom you feel safe. If you got those covered, they'll buy. And I don't mean they'll buy anything, but they will trust you to have found anything. Or they will trust your advice on a car or a lawnmower or what have you. I went through a mistake, but no harm done. Uh, I fell in love with dome houses. I'd never been in one, but Buckminster Fuller, Fuller, Bucky, as he liked to be called, worked for some some, some seminars, and he talked about dome houses because he had not invented. God did a dome house when he invented a bubble and put it on something, but uh, Fuller figured out how to use that and why it was of advantage and so on. And then for my teenage years, a friend of mine in Atlanta his family had an A-frame of the, the lake, Lake Lanier. And I just thought the A-frame, I was young and stupid, was so cool. So I said to my realtor out here one day, I'm looking for either a dome house and or an A-frame. And she said, well, that's unusual, but uh, okay. And uh, you want to see anything else in the meantime? I said, well, I'm in no rush. Why don't we see if we have those? Oh, and preferably on little acreage, because I was from the city, Marin County in Atlanta, and having acreage seemed like a good idea. It's not, but seemed like a good idea. So there's three bad ideas in one, acreage, dome house, A-frame. And uh, about, uh, I don't know, a month later, I guess, her name is Jan Dowen. She's no longer with us. Jan called me and said, uh, Ben. I think I found your house. I said, does it meet my requirements? She said, well, it's a dome house. It's got, I forget what it was, four or five, but four or five A-frames sticking out the side of where the windows, front door and back door would normally be. And it's on 10 acres. I said, well, let's go see it. We drove out. Uh, before I got out of the car, I'd made up my mind and walked inside. Blah, blah, blah. I said, write it up. Let's let's do it. Uh, she was a power seller and she listened. She didn't phone me and say, I know you want a dome house, but I found this little mobile home. Oh. <laughs> you know, I didn't get any of that nonsense. I didn't hear from her till she had A-frames, dome houses, and acreage. Power seller, consultative seller who listened with a capital L. Right. And, and that's what it takes. And with my house, one of my other criteria was I it needs to be in a rural area. It used to be a lot more rural because this house, this we have three streets wide, three steep, streets deep, but it was built on an old plantation ground, which is now mm -hmm. all around us has been knocked down. And I keep losing my my way to get to the grocery store because they keep losing, moving my landmarks. And I get lost very easily. But, you know, she listened because the houses that we had looked at before where I kept saying, no, oh my God, no, there's yellow lines in front of the house. It's like, dude, do you know what the traffic's going to be? Like, no, <laughs> that is not rural. But I say he, he wanted something, anything to get us. We had sold and went into a rent house. It was small and, yeah, it was just, it was not fun. It just wasn't, but it, and I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, where you were saying that you knew you know, about the Zewiski or whatever it was, and you didn't have it, but you were making sure that you were going to put the right product in the right customer's hands, even if that meant like, you know, Mr. Macy and 
Miracle on 34th Street, we're not that far from Christmas, so it's fresh in my mind. But when you treat people right, you say, we don't have it, and it it's probably going to be the best thing for you, head on down the road to Macy's. And yep. you're right. People do trust you for that. Absolutely. You may and I'm not, not like it, but your customers will. I'm not just looking at today's sale. I've told you before, I do business with people on a regular basis to whom I sold the first product or service over 60 years ago. So, and they're still, those who are still alive <laughs> are still with me or at least check in with me, which brings me to an, another important part about what we're talking about. Uh, if you don't get that sale, you still become the person to go to, the person to check with, and they'll refer you that way, which means I get first look at lots of things, uh, whether it's selling them something or investing with them in something or whatever. I tend to get first look because they say, I don't know, but I'll tell you who does. Call Ben Gay. Exactly. And the goal of this chapter is to establish long-term relationships through advisory expertise and simultaneously position yourself as a recognized leader, which you've said several times. Yep. I, you know, I pick up referrals from 10, 12, 20 years ago. I've been building websites for 20 years. I'm still in contact with most of my clients. Some have, maybe they're just not here. One man moved to Germany and shut everything down. He was done. And, you know, it just happens or, you know, sometimes they just, oh, this, I don't want to do this anymore, but I very, very rarely lose a client because we had a falling out. They'll still come to me. Even it was 10 years ago when I built that site, Denise, there's something wrong. Can you look at it? You bet. Yeah, I'm happy to. And through the miracle of computers and the internet, we now have the thing. I didn't used to like the term, but now I understand it better drip marketing right just staying in touch i find some reason to send out something to almost everybody i've ever done business with at least once a week right and what it really says no matter what the subject no matter what the text really says the message is ben gay is still around right, right. i'm still here for you i don't you know people say i read your email like, really what did it say? Because <laughs> I frequently don't recall. It was an excuse to drip market. And then, you know, you're going to lose some. I uh, We had a dear friend who used to set up all of our travel and everything. And they introduced me to a priest uh, and uh, who became a really neat guy and a close friend. And we lost touch over the years he was based in the bay area and then retired and and sort sort of and uh, one day we i forget whether he called me or i saw something about him and called him but anyway we got in contact and i said uh, uh what about russ and uh, connie fisher he said and they're the ones who introduced him to me and they're the ones that did millions of dollars in travel arrangements for holiday magic and me after i left holiday magic and I said, what about Russ and Connie Fisher? How are they doing? He said, Ben, I haven't talked to them in, I don't know, 20, 25 years. I don't know. And I said, you don't know Russ and Connie Fisher? They were among your dearest friends and good Hi. Catholics and so on. And he gave me a bit of wisdom that has really helped me. He said, Ben, time and distance take their toll. 
So there are those, I, you know, if somebody is getting up in years or should be about now, and I think of them, I think I'd like to reach out and call them. I've learned to really think that through and maybe do a little research because I've called lots of people who aren't with us anymore. You know, I haven't, I haven't talked to them in 30 years and suddenly their name crossed my mind. I Googled them or whatever and came up with a phone number and called and I'm talking to their widow or their new husband or, you know, whatever. Time and distance do take their toll, but the rest of the world, if you've done business with them through drip marketing, becoming in their eyes an expert at what you do and a good person, that's crucial, a good person, someone they know, like, trust, and with whom they feel safe, just stay in touch. Let them know you're here. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Could be two sentences. I frequently just send out a quote that strikes my uh, uh, mind. I have one here that I'm going to send out in the next few days from my mother. She was a little tiny person and a very sweet person. And one day in a conversation, I said, Mom, everybody you know loves you. And I was giving her some compliment. And she said, well, uh, I I do no harm, and I take up very little space. Oh. And I, I thought, is that my mom, right? my mom was a pocket Venus too. I used to tell her when she was around me and we were out in public to wear red because <laughs> she was not in my line of sight, and I kept losing her. <laughs> my mother would would have been that way too. But uh, I do no harm, and I take up very little space. I thought that is powerful stuff. I've used it a few times over the years and in casual conversation, but I'll turn that into a reason to reach out to several thousands of people before this week is over. And the real message isn't what my mother said. It's Ben Gay, the super salesman, the man who knows just about everybody worth knowing directly, indirectly, or within two or three degrees of separation is still alive. I'm still here. Feel free to reach out. And you've told me that before, and I've really, the first time you said that, I went, oh, because it made so much sense. And you've said it before you know, a couple of times on this podcast, and every time it just kind of grips my throat because I'm like, we all go. We all do. Yep. So do what we can, you know, to be to be here while we're here. And I know that sounds puerile, but it's, it's all I can come up with right now. <laughs> Second word, woohoo! Oh, and I think I just, and I think I've been practicing consultive. Is that right? Yep. Cons- yep. Oh, I finally got that word. So I think we're done here. I I can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> I've done two and a half words well. <laughs> so like, all right, okay, but let's keep going. So I'm I'm reading on page one one four and. You know, you and I talk about scripts a lot. I use them, you know, I use them for my podcasts. I use them for, you know, particular letters or things that I'm going to send out. I have to, and you know, they, they're going to change up, but I have to have a script. I have to know where I'm starting, where I'm ending. But here I'm reading on page 114. It says, it looks like you're saying, well, Mr. Prospect, Mr. Pro, it looks like you have a script going on there. Well, a script, we all, I, it's one of the most frustrating things I've ever dealt with in sales training. Ever since I was uh, brand new, just starting out, and the script that I refused to learn, 
Right. I remember. Almost got me thrown out of the company. And then once I learned it, I became a millionaire. I mean, it was, that's pretty persuasive. Uh, and uh, I would encourage you to use a proven, tested, tested, tested script. But it's all it is, is the best, what has been found to be the best way to explain this or that. In direct mail, nobody thinks anything about it. They work on a letter, work on a letter. They finally get it perfect. They still work on it. But once they get it perfect, that becomes their control piece. And that's what they mail out all the time. The Wall Street Journal's classic letter 20 years ago on a spring day, two young men graduated and blah, blah, blah. And it goes on. They've been mailing that letter, I believe, I've looked it up once, and I think my memory's right, over 50 years. And I don't think they've changed a word, maybe a word somewhere, I don't know where, but because it's effective. Well, everybody who's been in selling over 30 days is on a script because we tend to say the same things over and over again, maybe not out of brilliant sales psychology, but out of laziness. And that's what they were saying when I walked in. So I said that and then I changed it a little bit here and there. And you tend to say the same thing over and over and over again. So no one is against scripting. They may be may not be real sharp and they haven't figured out they're using scripts. No one's against them. So since you're not really against them, once you understand the concept, why not use the best one you can possibly? I'm, I'm thinking while we've been talking about the script I used to use for the Foley quad cut, 42 inch swath, look like a boomerang one of the lawnmowers I sold at uh, Macy's. And it was, I got the script down. I could do it in my sleep. I didn't know it was called a script. I just said the same thing over and over and over again because it tended to sell lawnmowers. That company was going into bankruptcy. My buyer bought the last 500 and I personally sold them all. They almost, they said, who's selling all these lawnmowers? They, they went into bankruptcy because they couldn't sell them. Um, I, one guy in Atlanta, sold 500. Regalware, which in Kewaskum, Wisconsin, is in business today because of my buyer, Cy Fisher. He bought, they were going into bankruptcy. He bought all of their five-piece cookware sets. And that's a one, two, three-quart saucepan, a fry pan, the lids fall of them, so it's more pieces than that, but uh, five cooking utensils. And, and we were selling them a five-piece set for $39.99. Now, that was years ago. It would be more today. But I see I see cookware commercials on television now, and I think they're selling them for about what I was selling the Regalware for years ago, years and years ago. And I sold so many so quickly, Regalware fired up their factory and started shipping more and then more to all the Macy's stores. And then they were back in business. Because one kid learned a script, loved it. I was blessed with foot traffic. I didn't have to go prospecting. They came up the escalator to the third floor because they'd seen the ad in the paper. And our stock people got tired of hauling uh, Foley quad cuts and, and Regalware cookware down three flights of elevators and loading them in the cars and so on. All of that was due to scripting. I didn't know it but I figured out an effective way to describe it and being lazy 
once I figured out an effective way to describe those items and lots of the other items in the store, I sold the first Teflon fry pans, $4.99. How did I know they were going to poison people later? <laughs> but uh, do you think uh, I didn't know that? Oh, it peeled off, and so it became, oh. a, became a health problem. You See, don't I hear cook with with Magnolite and cast iron. So. Yeah, you don't. Uh, you don't hear much about Teflon anymore, but you got to start somewhere. And that was the starting point. It was $4.99. And I became like a carnival barker. We had a lady there, Joan Oster. She really worked for the Osterizer people. So that was a stage name like Betty Crocker. But she was a wonderful pitch person. And I used to sit and watch her. And then one day she was going to lunch. I said, can I do that? She said, sure. And when she came back, I'd sold about 40 uh Teflon pans, as best I recall. And the reason was I learned her script. And then as a, even though I was a young man, uh, blessed with a male voice, I could get a little more attention. They started hearing my presentation as they were coming up the escalator to my right. I remember right where the thing was. And so she said, all right, show me what you're doing. Because I was selling more than she was. And she was an old pro. And so I told her and her sales went up. I was kidding about the Teflon, but it did have a tendency in a couple of years to peel off. And of course, the do-gooders swept in and proved that that was poisonous. And I assume they've either solved the problem or quit selling uh, Teflon coating. But it was a miracle in its day. But a miracle, you know, they say build a better mousetrap. The world will beat a path to your door. True. But they won't buy unless you have a good way of explaining the new mousetrap. So Macy's was bringing them into my lawnmower. They were bringing them into my Regalware cookware. They were bringing them into the Teflon fry pan. But once they got there, they had to have an effective presentation from someone who appeared, I underlined, appeared to know what he was doing. Well, but you did because. On you that had... one little subject, yeah. Right, right. I mean, <laughs> it's. Listen, if we're going to sell something or flog something, whatever, however you want to put it, you need to understand the product. I mean, I'm a web developer. I understand web development. And I also know what you really don't need. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, because I have so many consultations where people say, oh, well, I want this and this. Thing. Why? And once we go into their why, I'm like, no. <laughs> <Off the road. laughs> You need this, this, and this. Oh, it's, you know, you have to be able to look at the product, look at the buyer and give them the best that you can give them. Absolutely. Whether it's a consultation, whether it's something tangible, you know, like a, a frying pan or something kind of intangible, like the idea of a website that's going to get them more eyeballs. That's uh, it all. It always comes down. I, you and I have discussed this before. People are always asking me, how, how has selling changed over the years? You know, back when you were selling with George Washington is sort of the implication. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, yeah, I sold him. I sold him his saddle. <laughs> it was one of the, the Roosevelt's had to be one of them. <laughs> so I can't tell uh, the, the, my answer is, Selling hasn't changed at all. It's basically the same as it was when the silk traders were selling a couple of thousand years ago and when the Yankee peddlers in America were selling 300 years ago on horseback. They all had scripts. Uh, they all uh, were
were selling products that were needed or they created a need. And uh, they always kept in mind the buyer is asking themselves at all times, what's in it for me? Right. Here's one of the ways I keep sharp over the years on the subject of selling, because you can get sort of lackadaisical. My, my lackadaisical, my closing rate is 86%. And I'm sometimes I'm drumming my fingers on the desk, waiting for them to come to the conclusion that I knew they were coming to 30 minutes before. But the way I stay sharp and get reassured that scripting is good is I go to as the only four or five within driving distance that I'm willing to drive around here. But I go to county fairs, business shows, almost anything that goes to our local fairgrounds that's going to have booths within it. Because I'm looking for the guy who's standing behind the counter saying the same thing over and over and over again because his father or grandfather perfected that script with whatever the product was then, and it's improved over the years, but they're still using the same script and they're still acting surprised. They still make the same mistakes and then giggle about it and wipe it up or whatever. And go. And if you stand there five times, you'll see him make five spills. And then occasionally uh, one guy I wrote about it, and I think in the closers part too, uh, I, I had seen whatever the product was on television. I, I had bought it. It was good. And my friend, Johnny Hyde, the famous disc jockey, and I went to a county fair. And the guys got that item. And I said to him, uh, excuse me, uh, I have one of those. My friend wants one. We don't need to hear your presentation much as I'd like to. Can he just buy one? And the guy said, no. Uh, because then I won't get to say the presentation and other people won't overhear it. And so I'll lose business by just, I said, by just handing it to him, we can do it secretly, <laughs> you know, slip it under the counter. Now he's got to hear the presentation. I said, well, you have a lovely day. And we walked around the, the oh. aisle and there was another guy selling the same thing along with some other stuff. And I said, I told him the story. I said, is there any chance of us just buying a pan without hearing your whole deal? He said, how many you want? <laughs> I said, one. <laughs> Good. Bang. Handed John his fry pan or whatever it was. Uh, but you, you watch them, watch the real good, and I hate the term, but in, in their case, it's accurate. Watch the real good pitchmen and stand there, not just watch them and go on, stand there through four or five presentations and everything that we've been talking about today, you'll see displayed. They say the same thing word for word. They laugh in the same place. Uh, they answer the same questions because it's like the audience is also trained. The audience comes up and they ask the same four questions. <laughs> there must be a, a secret room somewhere where they train prospects. It's a performance. Yep. And it is, it's show business. As I've told you, every time I leave the house to go to the office or leave the office to go to a prospect or the airport, when I step out of the door, I say, it's showtime. All right. I All never right. forget. This is show business. Is it, people say, oh, public speaking, uh, is, is that like show business? Says, well, it's show business for ugly people. But yeah, it's like show business. We're putting on a show. I, I bet when I'm giving a seminar, it may not be exactly like the seminar that I gave the day before or we'll give the next day, 
but the stories within it are word for word the same. The only thing I might do is change up the order based on time or based on the audience reaction. I've told you when I go on stage, uh, if the person has read my introduction the way I wrote it, I get a standing uh, ovation. I, I hate people who get creative when they're supposed to read a script that's been tested thousands of times. But if they read it properly, I get a standing ovation. As they're sitting down, I say to my, I say to them first, okay, let's get this Ben Gay thing out of the way. And what I'm really doing, it's my opening temperature taker. If I get mild laughter, I've either talked to them before uh, and forgot, or they're not in the mood of the last group. So that alters the first story I'm going to tell, perhaps. But the story I tell is word for word the way I say that story every time because I've figured out what works. I've tried all. I'm like Edison with the 10,000 failures. I've tried every way to tell that story that didn't work. I finally found one that would work. And therefore, when it come off, people say, that was unbelievable. You talked without notes. I have hours of material in my head, memorized word for word. Uh, Mark Twain used to be done by Hal Holbrook. Hal Holbrook said that he had memorized word for word nine and a half hours of Mark Twain's stories, word for word. And he would tell, like the Ben Gay joke, he would tell the same opening short story every time. And based on that reaction to that story, he would reach back. I always picture a jukebox with the arm going back to get the next record and bring it forward. Uh, based on the reaction to that first story, he'd reach back into the vault and pull out a story that fits that crowd. And he would tell that story. And based on the reaction to that story, determine which of the nine and a half hours of material, he only did a two hour show, including, including the, uh, in the, what do you call it, intermission, uh, he would tell the next story. And he said, I'm not sure he could have proved this, but he never gave the exact same present presentation twice because one, he left out seven hours of material every time he did two hours worth of material. Two, he changed up the order. But within the story, I've come to call them script chunks. Within the story he chose next, he used a script chunk word for word. And the same thing in the sales presentation. I don't go, hi, this is Ben Gay and talk for 47 minutes and ask me to give you your credit, ask you to give me your credit card. The presentation may be 47 minutes long, but the next story or part of the story you hear is based on your reaction to the previous one. But when I tell it, it's word for word, the way I've been telling it for years now. See, I find this fascinating. And when you talked about the uh, the peddlers that used to travel around the wild, wild west, yeah. as you know, I love to read. I'll read the back of a cereal box, and I hate cereal. But if it's anything <laughs> in front of me, I'll read it. I'll know all about that multicolored garbage that you're putting into your tummy. Lick the box. That's where the nutrition is. <laughs> but, but I read history. I mean, I love history. And I remember while you were talking, I kept flashing back to snippets that I've read, you know, different 
different times in America in particular, and even in England, you know, because there are peddlers everywhere. And you're right. Those stories are passed down. They are scripted because, and I would hear stories like, oh, I was in Idaho. My grandmother was in Idaho. She was riding in the first wagon train, blah, 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 blah. And they would get to their next place, wherever it was, maybe it was another state entirely. And they would hear of a peddler that they'd already heard of and they knew the script already. Yep. The good ones get passed around. Exactly. uh, I try not to plagiarize, but there are things I have written and said that I have long since forgotten where I got them. You know, if if it was a big story, I pretty much can remember all those. I'll give uh, attribution to him and all the other greats I've had the honor of working with over the years. But there are some that are so ingrained in our society, I don't know that I'm stealing them anymore. Everything I've ever said, including everything I've said to you today and everything you've said to me is stolen. Because when you came into the world, you didn't know any. So every word you use. Some some days I still don't. Yeah. Every word you use, every sentence you use, you picked up from somewhere over the years. Someone once said, and I I give them credit, but I forget who it was. After the Bible was finished and Shakespeare died, the rest (laughs) of us have just been moving words around. (laughs) That that could very well. Listen, there are no new ideas. There just aren't. There's different ways of expressing them. You know, there's, you can pick a fight over just about anything because, oh, that was my idea. It really wasn't. (laughs) Don't don't talk to me anymore. (laughs) But, you know, that's just how it goes. Um, Going back very quickly. So at the end of this chapter, you said, our old friend, the late Earl Nightingale used to say, if you have a secret, write a book then place a copy in every library in the United States. Your secret will be safe. That was interesting. Did he really say, He, I guess he really did say that. Yeah, really said it uh, from the stage and over dinner numerous times. And he was right because people don't read. I said to Dr. Napoleon Hill the first time he was at our house and my wife, the late Marsha Gay, uh, had left a copy of Think and Grow Rich on the coffee table at an angle where as you entered that room, you came in from the right and it was aimed right at you. There was no way to miss it. It was embarrassing what she had done. It, it was, was sweet. <laughs> and embarrassing. But okay. I said, oh, look, Dr. Hill, a copy of Think and Grow Rich. How does it feel to have written uh, one of the best-selling books in the history of mankind? And he said, best-selling least read and i have here on my desk an original it was not original but an old old 75 year old copy of think and grow rich that a friend of mine bought at a uh, garage sale and for me and i wish i we were on video so i could show it to you the uh, front of the book it's hardcover is cherry red like it just came out of the bookstore the last the other side is cherry red just like it came out of the bookstore the spine is bleached out to the point you almost can't read it. What happened was the nice lady who bought the book went to some appearance Dr. Hill gave somewhere. Her name was Grace Dixon, and he signed it for her to Miss, Mrs. Grace Dixon with best wishes, Napoleon Hill. And by the book, I had flashbacks to best-selling least read. She bought it. it. The spine, by the way, has never been cracked, and I haven't cracked it either when I went to open it after 
Senator Normer gave it to me, I, I realized, my God, this has never been read, except the only time it was opened was when Dr. Hill opened it to sign it. So I said, I'm going to leave it that way. But every time I look at that book, I think about what he said, because Mrs. Grace Dixon went to a lot of trouble to go to a meeting, stand in line, buy a book, take it home, stick it in the bookcase for the next 75 years. She never read a word of it. In a way that is incredibly touching, and it's also very sad. Mm -hmm. It is. She had the sea, and I hope she had a lovely life. But she had this one of the secrets of life in her hands and stuck it in a book, book uh, bookcase like a trophy. And that's some of the great libraries that I've seen in individual people's offices. They're not things they've read. In fact, if you look at the bookcase, they couldn't have read. all. If all they did all day long was read, they couldn't have read it. Mm -hmm. My first flushing out, I gave five thousand books to our local library because i realized I, I didn't have a bookcase i had a trophy case look how smart i am look at all these books some i all i had scanned some i had read hardly any had i taken down and read again so i felt well let's get it in the hands of someone who might read it so i gave away five thousand books and Gigi pointed out to me the other day they i was about due for another five thousand book cleaning so apparently it's an illness. Yes, <laughs> I have the same problem. I have giant bookcases in my garage that were moved from, you know, my other house. And they were in my rent house for a while and they moved here. Well, I don't, I have an open floor concept, no walls, very few walls. So these giant, literally giant handmade bookcases that run an entire wall in my garage now you know how long a garage is so they're covered with books thousands of books I've got books in my bedroom in this room my office I have hundreds of books and every single book here including yours um, were gifted to me by my podcast guests and I have read or thumbed through all of them and I do have a special shelf where they're the ones that you're on shelf number two over here right by my office right by my tower actually my computer tower i can just reach over and grab it because that shelf those are the go-to books i always need to be digging in them and there are other books like oh I'm, you know i need to go read that one again and i will um but they've all been read at some level now i do give away the duplicates because somehow or another sure. I, I do wind up with a lot of duplicates but i don't loan my books if you want one, you go get it on your own. You're not taking my <laughs> books. They're mine. Because <laughs> I know I will never see it again. No, you never will. We are running out of time. So where can people find? Well, first of all, what are we talking about next week? Uh, I don't know. Uh, let's announce it next week or in the between now and then. We got talking and I didn't pay much attention. Okay. So, so uh, we will. I will tell you during the week, and you okay. announce it when you announce it. And I'll give it the short version. If you want the closer series, which you ought to have, yes, for free shipping and special pricing, go to stores. Dot, eBay, dot, com, forward slash all one word Ronzoni books R O N Z O N E. B O O K S. 
stores.ebay.com forward slash Ronzoni book special pricing. I still sign uh, and free shipping. I still sign them all and date them all, et cetera. And they all come with our standard unconditional lifetime money back guarantee. I'm talking fast because I want to save all the time left for you. Tell them finally about your new project that's you're launching. I'm finally ready. Listen, I've been podcasting for um, about 16 years. As of this month, it is 16 years old, which is just shocking to me. But I've often been asked how my podcast, Your Partner in Success Radio, managed to soar to the top 2% of global, global popularity charts. When I tell you I'm shocked on a regular basis, I'm like, huh. All I'm doing is just chatting with people, but apparently it's a lot more than that. So now I've decided, after I've been asked a lot, to unveil what I do and how I can help others amplify their voices. And you'll hear me constantly say, get your voice heard. And 2024 is really the, the year to do that. So I've opened up my personalized podcast strategy calendar for 10 people. I can't handle more than 10 because it's pretty intensive. So if you're ready to elevate your podcast game in 2024, I'm telling you, if you're not podcasting as Marketing 101, you're missing a sure bet. So consider joining me for a three-hour recorded session, and you do pay for it, where we can turn your podcast dreams into reality. But before making any decisions, I want you to schedule a free consultation with me. And as been wisely noted out, noted just a couple of times here today, people want to buy from and work with those they know, like, and trust and can feel safe with. So I'm not asking you to pay me if you don't know who I am. I want you to get to know who I am and find out if we really can work together to get you, get your voice heard. So find more details and secure your spot by visiting the scheduler link on your partner and success radio.com on the contact page or call me toll free at 888-719-6711 to connect directly. Ben, thank you. My pleasure. And I'm really excited about you getting your program up and running. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me carefully. If you're going to do anything in podcasting or want to do anything in podcasting, Denise Griffiths knows more about it than just about anybody on the planet. And she's accessible to you. Take advantage of that. Reach out and contact her. Thank you. Well, listen, everybody, thank you for joining us. And be sure to find us on your partner in Success Radio, which is the hosting for this particular podcast. And just look for our names. Look for the Closers Inner Circle podcast. Look for your partner in Success Radio or Ben Gay Third, or Denise Griffiths. You can't throw the stick on the internet without hitting this podcast and our names. We're out there. Thank you, everybody. We will see you next Wednesday. Ben, tell Gigi hi. I shall. And I know I haven't talked to her, but I know she sends her love. You have a wonderful day. You too. Talk to you soon.